You're listening to the Holistic Travelers Podcast. Got a lot for you here. Oh my goodness. I want to start with Aaron Rodgers. Let's start there. What is he saying? Let's go there. So let's see. I mean, people are speaking up with big names, and it's about time to awaken some people up to what's going on. So let's see. Let's see. Let's see who's waking up the masses. Malone interview hits worldwide records from Joe Rogan. Good. People fighting back. MSM trying to cover up heart attacks with lies and more. Well, consumer confidence. So, give me a second because I, I got it from me and we know and yet I only want that little clip of it. And then I'm going to talk about the book of Revelations. Let's go into chapter four. Let's start with chapter four and let's get a little information. We'll start with like. Um, education and then the, we'll finish with the whole book you know reading it but that's what today's episode is all about red pilling people and what's going on in the world compared to what the bible says you know I, I've gotten accused of spreading misinformation uh, when I talk about my you know, the treatment plan that I used uh, to get better, that's been used by a number of people and doctors. If you watched uh, Dr. McCullough on Rogan, who's he's a cardiologist, epidemiologist, he goes at length to talk about, and he's double vaxxed. He talks about the treatment plans that he uses with people. I think one of my issues, and I've, I've brought this so many times, is one, they don't talk about the fact that uh, you know guys are, are getting better using this, this uh, people are getting better using these things. That's fine, you don't want to talk about that. But how come in a league where we're seeing what fifty-one guys on the list yesterday, 100. there's still zero conversation, at least publicly, around treatment options for people that that test positive? I do know behind the scenes, this is one hundred percent true. There are many teams who are using or are recommending a lot of the same treatments that I got for their players. So, Doctor Joe Rogan, there's treatments being talked about behind closed doors, but. Publicly, I don't understand why we can't talk about treatments. And, and because I think it needs to be not just talked about with the NFL players, but with the rest of the country, that there are ways of, whether it's Delta or Omicron, it seems like there's there's not, you know, there's not a lot of major symptoms. But if you have Delta like I did, there's treatment options that actually help. You know, and, and if you don't agree with the ones I use, well, let's come up with some other ones. You know, instead of like sticking a person, you know, putting 10 days in an isolation, you know, with, and, and not able to see anybody in zero treatment options. And to me, that's just, if science can't be questioned, it's not science anymore. It's propaganda. So as you can see, Aaron Rodgers exposed them. Exposed uh, you are. So, um, it, it makes you sense that I don't even watch much of the NFL anymore. It's too political. It makes me sad. It just seems like the more red pill, the more we are introduced to things that we are been watched on the television that are propaganda. And now, because I know it's so much propaganda, I have a hard time watching it. Um, and it's disheartening, and I can see it. Though I did enjoy... Um, 
the new Spider-Man movie. Go watch the old episodes first and then watch that Spider-Man movie. And there is a little in that too. But it was a uh, it was pretty good. That one was pretty good. Um so let's chat. Um I've already shared so much of Joe Rogan is like those those episodes and him talking to all sorts of kind of people i have that on some other episodes let's look listen um up to revelations in chapter four a little bit we're gonna look at the book in a minute we're gonna go into some studying that um i found another pastor that's not talked about it much that this is recorded in uh 2013 i don't think he's up with us anymore but such good ed- education and there's just not a lot of pastors doing it like he is so listen it's almost as if the promise to overcome her was a postscript now with just this one letter that we i'm not going to jump to any great conclusions i just want to call your attention to the value of being very precise when you study and we're going to discover that the first three are characterized this way the last four are different we're going to discover there's several ways the first three letters are distinctive from the last four, and we'll do that as we go. And we also determined that the, we suggested the possibility at least, that Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea are each descriptive of a successive phase of church history, it seems. At least that's the conjecture. And of course, Ephesus would be descriptive of the apostolic church, the early church, the first century or so, very jealous for doctrine. That's where we had all the councils and putting to, putting down these various heresies that surfaced. They're very diligent on that, but they lost their first love. They lost their, their, their the love for the king. They were too busy on the business of the king to have time for the king. That was That's the quick snapshot of Ephesus. But we're tonight going to explore the second letter, the letter to Smyrna. And unto the angel in the church, it's Smyrna, right? By the way, the word Smyrna comes from Smyrios, which is a Greek word that has a Hebrew root, which is more, which means a death. It actually is a word that means myrrh, myrrh. And myrrh is a, made from a, a, a gum of certain trees or shrubs in Arabia or Ethiopia. And it's highly valued for a number of reasons. It's used in perfume. It's also used in holy anointing oil for priests, and it's used in the purification of women in Esther 2 and so forth. But the primary use of, of myrrh was for embalming and for uh, um, suffering, a pain reliever. Myrrh gives off its characteristic scent by being crushed. So the very term here is going to turn out to be very descriptive of the church at Smyrna. Now, you recall when, when we, at Christmas we usually celebrate the wise men bringing the three, they're actually not wise men, they're the magi, but in any case, they bring the three gifts to the child. They bring what? What were the three gifts, anyone? Go, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, exactly. Gold speaks of royalty. Frankincense is a incense for uh, priesthood, speaking to his deity and priesthood. And myrrh, of course, speaks of his suffering and death. So the three, it's prophet, priest, and king. And prophet in the sense of the, the frankincense, or I should say, uh, uh, prophet in the sense of gold, well, prophet, priest, and king, 
gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The the uh, uh, king being gold, the prophet being frankincense, and the or prophet priest and priest being frankincense, and prophet in the sense of prophesying his death. Now the reason that's interesting is. And of course, the body of Jesus was embalmed in myrrh by Nick, Joseph and Nicodemus in John 19. But it's interesting to look ahead in the millennium because we find in Isaiah 60, it's going to, it mentions that he is going to be given gifts one in the millennium of gold and frankincense, but no myrrh. Why no myrrh? Because his death is behind him. It's once and for all. And uh, so... And there are, there are obviously different levels of application. We'll focus initially, of course, on the local. The Smyrna was an actual place. It's about 42 miles north of Ephesus. It had a double harbor. Had a narrow entrance to the second part with a chain that could be blocking it. This has since been silted in, but that's the way it was originally. Today, this city is a thriving city in Turkey. It's known as Izmir, which is a Turkish rendering in a sense of Smyrna. And it's the third largest city in Turkey. It's got about 300,000 population. It's a very beautiful, very bustling city. In the New Testament period, it probably had a population of about 100,000, which is a very large city in those days. It ex exports tobacco, grapes, figs, cotton, olives, and olive oil, a lot of shipping. It's got a great harbor. In fact, if you look at a map, that's where Patmos is. That's where the <clears throat> John is writing this. We were at Ephesus last time, and that uh, had a harbor that was getting filled with erosion because the Romans took down all the trees and that caused erosion that eventually lost the harbor. But Smyrna is about 42 miles to the north. It has an excellent almost double harbor and as such it is on a, it becomes a major trading port that connects uh, Greece and the rest of it to, uh, to, the, uh, to the east. And uh, if you look at a, a regular contemporary map um, you can see Izmir there uh, just north of Ephesus, and uh, you get a, it's roughly makes it. If you, you can almost see a triangle between Athens, Izmir, and Patmos to get a rough feeling for the geography there. Very, very key location. In fact, it's always been. It's stood at the entrance of a very fertile valley, and uh, a very well sheltered Gulf, very sheltered harbor. So it was very. Its strategic placement caused it to rival other cities, Sardis and others, as the as the connection between Asia and uh, Europe. And so it's very prosperous from the beginning. Strabo can, uh, described it as the most beautiful city in the world. And even today, the bustling Izmir has been termed the Paris of the Levant. And so uh, it was devastated many years ago. It, uh, it had a history of about 2,500 years before it was devastated by uh, uh, the Lydians and so forth. But anyway, we get to about the 4th century. Alexander the Great orders one of his generals, Lysimachus, to build a strong, well-planned city, the most beautiful city uh, in that region. And uh, it became known as the Flower of Iona. And uh, so it, it was singled out for excellence very early. And it, it prospered in addition to that patronage from Alexander. It also became one of the greatest uh, cities of the world. When you get to about 27 BC, it comes under the control of the Romans because it, it was a very faithful ally to Rome and the Syrian and Mithraic wars and so um, they, they, they played the chips right and they were on the winning side. So they uh, enjoyed great material prosperity for the next several centuries. Um, during the reign of Tiberius there was a contest and they wanted to be to see them there and about 378 another earthquake demolished the city but again they always rebuild. It's, it's so prosperous and it's such a critical uh, location that uh, 
there's a lot of pressure to always you know rebuild. But it obviously has been a major pagan center. At the foot of the mountain, there's a huge temple for Zeus, which is considered in, in that pantheon uh, the father of the gods and so forth. But also along the Golden Street, as it's called, from the port all the way up to that mountain, there's just a, 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 a row of shrines, Apollo, to Apollo the sun god, to Aphrodite, the goddess of love and so forth, Esculapius, the god of medicine. We're going to talk more about him next time because he's very prominent in Pergamus. We'll talk about some of the interesting things that lie behind that whole tale. Sibylle is the primary goddess for the for the, for Smyrna. At the Agora itself, that's the commercial and political center, there were statues of Poseidon, the sea god, and Demeter, the, the goddess of corn. But in any case, the primary uh, deity they worshipped was Sibylle. And uh, uh, I won't get into a lot of this, except her worship was very wild and unrestrained. She's considered the giver of wealth, and she's always in uh, depicted enthroned with a very unusual crown, a crown of battlements and towers. And I mention this primarily because there are some speculation by some scholars that in Daniel chapter 11, it, it, there may be an allusion to this because of speaking of as the goddess of fortress. In your King James is the god of forces, but in the, the rendering, it's, it's actually female. The goddess of fortresses is alluded there, and some people associated with this particular idol. But more to the point of our interest, uh, Smyrna was also one of the early places to sponsor Caesar worship. It readily accepted Caesar worship, and uh, in, in 196 B.C., so this is a couple of centuries before the period that we're going to be watching in John's period, the uh, Smyrnians were erected a temple to Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome. And, 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 and because of that, they won the contest, so to speak, to build uh, this uh, um, temple to Tiberius in 26 A.D. You realize that the, the, uh, the, uh, the emperor, the, it, it became a, uh, uh, went from republic to an empire in about 30. The worship of the emperor was compulsory. Now, for most people, this was a token gesture. Each year, a Roman citizen had to burn a pinch of incense on the altar and acknowledge publicly that Caesar was supreme lord. Now, this was simply an action they took to be primarily, it's primarily a political one because every individual in the empire could worship whatever gods they wanted to because they had all kinds of tribes and cultures that they had conquered. But what they wanted to do is get everyone to acknowledge that Caesar's number one. That was their way of, what they really, that was their way of uh, having them express a commitment to Caesar above all others. And so uh, uh, it was just a way of unifying the, uh, and integrating the many elements of the empire. But, uh, and, and, and if you did that, you, you go up there and you put a pinch of whatever it is into the fire, you received a formal document that you had done so each year. And that was a very important certificate politically. Now this was unfortunately a very vital test for a Christian because, and there were many Christians that went ahead and did that just to avoid trouble. But Christians who were serious about Jesus Christ had a problem. They refused to go and put this pinch of incense in the fire and that caused them to be burned at the stake in effect willingly because all they had to do to avoid being burned at the stake is put a pinch of stuff in the fire but not in good conscience, because if Jesus Christ is Lord, Caesar isn't. And so those that refused were made an example of, either by being burned at the stake or fed to the lions or whatever. So anyway, let's take a look at the letter Jesus writes to the church of Smyrna. Under the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Now this is the title of, that Jesus chose. 
Now, interesting title. First and the last, he which was dead and is alive. These are the elements of the identity of Christ to this church. And it's interesting, you're going to see that concept of death all through this, because they were facing martyrdom every day. We Last time, we, when we looked through chapter 1, we noted that this expression, first and the last, occurs how many times in the Bible? Seven. Good guess. <laughs> and... Uh, and it's a, what's very revealing is in two of the places, he not only says he's the first and last, but he was dead and is alive. And uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a blow to the Jehovah's Witnesses, because they love to talk about Jehovah God and so forth, and you can get them to acknowledge in each of these references that the first and the last is, of course, what they call Jehovah God. But Revelation 1.17 and Revelation 2.18 has got an embarrassing phrase tucked in there. I'm the first and the last who was dead and am alive. That's a little hard to deny that that's speaking very specifically of none other than Jesus Christ. But um, then he gets to the report card. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Ooh. Now this is the commendation. This is the good news, Smyrnians. Jesus says, I know thy works. We need to notice that almost every letter says, opens that way. The commendation is, I know thy works. Jesus knows what you've accomplished. He knows what, what really motivated it, whether it was public approbation or whether it was really for him. But in any case, I know thy works and, their tri and your tribulation and your poverty. Now, by the way, this term tribulation, don't confuse tribulation with the great tribulation. Tribulation here is used in the sense of persecution. We're going to be dealing with the great, a specific period of tribulation that Jesus himself labels as the great tribulation. But this is speaking in effect of, of just persecution and poverty. But then he inserts a little editorial comment, but thou art rich. They thought they were poor, but Jesus is telling them, hey, you're better off than you think you are. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Let's talk just a little bit about tribulation. There's several different words. The word that's used here is thalipsis, which is a pressing together, crushing under pressure. It's a metaphor for oppression, affliction, tribulation, distress, or straits. Um, anyone here not in tribulation? Okay. That was a trap. You'll see why in a little bit. But I want to emphasize right up early, we're not talking about the great tribulation. That's going to become clear as we go downstream. We, every one of us, are going to have tribulation, trouble, persecution. Why? Because Jesus promises it in John 16, 33, 2 Timothy 3, 12, and elsewhere. He also speaks of our poverty. We're poverty but rich, according to his... This is going to be in contrast, vivid contrast, to the church at Laodicea at the end, which thinks they're rich but are actually poor. The church of Smyrna thought they were poor but were much richer than they thought. The church at Laodicea with its fancy cathedrals or whatever, thinks they're rich, but are actually poor. And we're gonna we'll indulge in that contrast later as we go. There are two words for poverty in the Greek. Penia, which means having nothing that's superfluous. I'm having nothing uh, superfluous. That's you know, you know what you got your minimum necessities. And uh, tachia, which is uh, the one that word that's used here. It's a state of one that has nothing at all. It implies absolute beggary. We have to beg for everything. You've got Zippo, nothing, less than nothing. You've got Zero with the rim rubbed out, okay? Jesus says, I know you're suffering. That's how comforting that is. Now, what's interesting about their poverty, it could have been ameliorated 
with a pinch of incense in a fire offered to Caesar, it would all go away. No problem. And there were some that would argue, well, I'm secretly a Christian. I'm just not going to avoid some trouble. And, and uh, that was sort of the parallel, the parallel idea in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrew Christian before the temple, while the temple was still standing. And many of them were getting oppressed by their Jewish friends because they were Christians. And some of them were considering the idea of going along with that and getting saved at the last minute. And that was what, what the writer of Hebrews points out, that's not an option. Then we get into the strange thing. Who are these that say they are Jews and are not? What on earth, the blasphemy, uh, that say they are Jews and not, but Jesus designates them as the synagogue of Satan. Who is this referring to? Now, John, the writer, knows a lot about the blasphemy of Jews. If you read John chapter 8, it's one of the most intense uh, exchanges between Christ and the Pharisees. They call him illegitimate. They, make a, they, they crashed, cast an aspersion to his birth, that Mary was was uh, unmarried when he was, you know, uh, got pregnant. And he says, I'll tell you something about your fathers. You're, you're the father of the devil. And there's a, there's a there's real, you, you, when you read John 8, you want to really understand the sparks that are flying. But he understands the blasphemy of Jews. Some of the scholars view this um, allusion to those that were legalistic, the legalists, the Ju Judaizers. And this is the leaven that the epistle of the Galatians hits head on. And, uh, you know, remember in Acts 15, there was the demand that the Gentile converts had to get circumcised. Circumcision was a symbol of, a, of an allegiance to the uh, covenant with Abraham. Circumcision of the children was a demonstration that the parents were committed to the, to the uh, uh, covenant of Abraham. Now, in today's world, it doesn't mean as much because it's often done just for medical reasons. But you know, classically, the, the circumcision was an indication of the parents being committed to Abraham. Well, the idea was that when a Gentile became a Christian, they were obviously generally un uncircumcised. There was a, that was a big issue. And that's what led to the council in Acts 15, in which it was the conclusion was that uh, uh, they don't have to become Jews to become Christians. Okay, And uh, even Peter is rebuked by Paul in these issues. In Galatians 2 and 3, it's mentioned, where Paul rebukes Peter, and Peter later admits he was wrong. He agrees in a second letter. Well, Paul, although he sort of mumbles, he says, some things are hard to understand. <laughs> but they had their issues on here. And uh, now you need to understand, if you're going to understand the, the history here, the early persecution of Christians was brought about by the Jews, not the Romans. That came later. The early, that's why um, Luke, as he drafts what I believe are the do trial documents for Paul's appeal to Rome, in both Luke 1 and Luke 2, the book of Acts, uh, we find the, that uh, one of the emphasis that's always there is that the, the, the troubles were always fanned by the local Jewish community that regarded the Christian sect as a heretical sect, of course. And so that happened in Antioch in Acts 13, in Iconium in Acts 14, in Lystra in Acts 14, in Thessalonica in Acts 17, and so forth. And just to mention a few of them. It's interesting that Polycarp was trained at the feet of Paul. Paul trained Polycarp, and Paul probably appointed Polycarp as the bishop of Smyrna. Okay? So he's one of the early church fathers. In 166 AD, now understand Paul is, I mean, excuse me, John is writing, did I say Paul before, excuse me? John was the guy that trained Polycarp. I may have slipped my tongue. I may have said it wrong. 
John trained Polycarp. John's the one that appointed uh, Polycarp to the as the Bishop of Smyrna. And John is writing the, uh, this letter uh, in about 95 AD under under the uh, under Domitian, right? About 166 AD. So a good deal, a good. Polycarp by now is probably a hundred years old, maybe over a hundred years old, and he is—he refused to recant as he was asked to, and his quote, when they put—they're tying him to the stake to burn him at the stake. He said, "Eighty and six years have I served him, Jesus Christ, and he never did me wrong. How can I now blaspheme my King who has loved me so? Bring on the flames!" So, <clears throat> so this old man was burned at the stake on a Sabbath day by the Jews, as well as uh, he, they encouraged the Jews. They, they were they were, they were you know part of the cheering section here, as they burned Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, at the stake. You know we speak of the remember the uh, parables of the various soils and the sowing of the tares. There are four tares that were sown in the early church. Legalism was one of them. Legalism denies Christ's completed work. Gnosticism is a denial of Christ's humanity. And Caesar worship, the denial of Christ's lordship. These three uh, tares or false doctrines are, uh, were the primary adverse thrusts against the early church. Legalism denying Christ's completed work, Gnosticism, denial of Christ's humanity, and Caesar worship, denial of Christ's lordship. Okay, let's get to the exhortation then. Jesus goes on, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Pretty straightforward exhortation. Fear none of those things. It's interesting that one of the condemnations we'll see in the lake of fire, but when it lists the various people who can be thrown in fire, the first one listed are the fearful. It's hard to realize that fearfulness is the opposite of faith. Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, who's going to cast you into prison? The devil. He's behind all of this. That ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful in death, and I'll give thee the crown of life. See, they're fearful of death, Jesus will give them the crown of life. Now, this term ten days has a couple of different uh, understandings by various authors. The term ten days is held by some scholars as to be an, a Hebrew idiom for a short period of time. We find it used that way in Genesis 24, verse 55, Job 19:3, Dan 1, 12. It's used as a figure of speech, if you will. And that may be what it means, but I'm going to show you something, other, another view that might be more uh, defendable. By the way, the cr word crown here is a Stephanos, not a diadem. So the Stephanos here is the, is, is the kind of thing you reward a victor, if you will. And uh, so, ten days. It's interesting that there were ten, if you study the persecutions by Rome, we obviously had Nero, was, was one of the bad guys. He, he's the guy that had Paul beheaded, and he's the one that crucified Peter upside down. Then we get to Domitian. That's the guy that exiled John to Patmos, and that's, in other words, the contemporary guy here. Um, and uh, he is followed by Trajan when, Tra when Domitian dies and when John is released from Patmos to go back to Ephesus, where he retires, in effect. 
But Trajan is the guy that had Ignatius burned at the stake, and he's followed by Marcus Aurelius. This brings you into the period that was celebrated in the movie The Gladiator, essentially, if you recall. Marcus Aurelius is the guy that it was in his reign that Polycarp gets burned at the stake. Then we have uh, Septimus Severus, who is the uh, one that killed Irenaeus. And then we get to uh, Maximus, and uh, he killed Ursula and Hippolytus, and uh, Decius, and uh, Valerian, and then Aurelian, and then finally Diocletian. Diocletian is, is the tenth of this gang. Notice they're not necessarily contiguous. These are the particular emperors under which there was specific, directed persecution against the church. And the worst of the bunch was Diocletian, the last guy on the list. And a total of 250 years, some scholars suspect the 10 days or 10 periods are here, here you know, profiled. And so either way. Rome persecution uh, occurs, there, there was famine and pestilence on Rome. Diseases were brought back from the Parthian Wars. The, they, the diseases devastated Rome. And also the Tiber overflowed and put the grain storehouses underwater. All this led to famine and persecution at various times. And what they did, the convenient scapegoats, was this illegal underground religious movement called Christians. They were a convenient sca scapegoat. And so it was convenient for the politicians to somehow pin the blame for these disasters on the Christians. So Christianity became a crime. Five million believers died for Christ during this period, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs. Sound terrible? The 20th century murdered more Christians than all the other centuries put together. So while this is bloody and while this is dark, it doesn't compare to today. To today. <laughs> Stalin himself murdered somewhere between 10 and 20 million, somewhere between 30 and 40 million of his own people, of which the estimates are 50% of them were Christians. And you could go on and on. But so, in addition, of course, to the Jewish issue that we all are familiar with. There are crowns promised. We saw the crown of life promised in this one. I thought it would be a good time to point out there's five that are specifically promised in the Scripture. Crown of life for those who have suffered for his sake, and both here and in James, um, uh, James chapter 1. The crown of righteousness is promised in 2 Timothy 4 for those who love his appearing. Crown of glory for those who fed the flock. Crown incorruptible for those who press on steadfastly. The crown of rejoicing for those who win souls. So how many crowns are there going to be given out? Trick question. Probably many, many, many different kinds. If I was going to pick a guess, I wouldn't pick the five that are listed. I'd guess seven, but I suspect there's more than that too. These are just happen to be the ones that are alluded to specifically in the scripture. Okay, we went through the exhortation. And after the exhortation, we have this phrase, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then we have this promise to the overcomer. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And uh, the first, first thing I want you to notice is the structure. You notice that the promise to the overcomer, just like the previous letter, is like a PS. It's after the close of the letter. It's like an appendage. And uh, it speaks of the second death. Revelation, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in chapter 20. We'll talk about it more there. Also, Jude talks about being twice dead. You see, if, you, you know, if you're uh, born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. That's the way to go. Right? Okay. Well, I said there are different applications. Let's talk, how does this apply? Fine, we've talked about how it applies to, to Smyrna. How does it apply to you and I? Well, first of all, one way we need to apply this, and I'll show you, we're, we're, I'm going to give you an addenda at the end of this, 
well, may surprise you, but don't confuse persecution with the Great Tribulation. And here's the key phrase. I didn't even put it on a slide. I want you to be paying attention here. Just because we believe we can prove to you that the church will not go through that period of time called the Great Tribulation, where do we in America get the arrogance to presume that we'll be exempted from what most of the body of Christ in most of the world for most of the last 1900 years have had to endure. It's called persecution. Don't confuse. A lot of people accuse pre-trib people of being escapists. No, hardly. Hardly. No, we, 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 we're not that naive. Most of the body, most of the world, most of 1900 years had to endure persecution. It is the opinion of many, and we join with those, that ultimately the body of Christ in America will have to go underground again, like it had to in the early years. But let's get back to this non-Jews. What on earth are the non-Jews? Is it possible? Is it possible that these who say they are Jews and are not are those who claim that Israel forfeited her promises and it now falls upon the church? Is it possible that this illusion, this very strange illusion that we find here in this letter, may be reflexive on the people who hold a view that's called replacement theology? Okay, I'm going to stop it there. Um, he goes a little further. She can go watch the whole thing. It's kind of long-winded with the chapter 4. I will try to... Uh, yes, I'll see if I can get chapter 4 so you can listen to it in the message verse. But I wanted you to hear this first. Let's see. It's non-stop. It's not working anymore, is it? Well, I, I mean, I think it's important to realize that ratings are not important for CNN or MSNBC. These are messaging operations, right? These these things are paid for by other people. They 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 protect very important moneyed interest. I mean, you can look at all these places that they lose money, but does it matter to Jeff Bezos how much he's spending? for the Washington Post? I mean, absolutely not. It's defending certain interests. So I think that to understand the way the media looks today, it's important to move away from things like ratings and popularity. These are messaging outfits. They're messaging platforms that circulate uh, circulate through the oligarchy's associates. They need to keep everyone on board. That's all that matters, not that they're bringing over independent viewers or that they're selling this to uh, reasonable Americans who are looking to understand what the world looks like. They're messaging to each other. And this week, um, this week it's about January 6th. Remember, stay on message. We're talking about the insurrectionist and the seditionist who support Donald Trump. So, uh, again, it's, it's, it's just party solidarity. That, that's all that we're seeing here. This is it's not normal American politics. This is third world stuff. This, this yeah. is third world stuff. It's Chinese Communist Party stuff, Soviet Union stuff. That's what's really important, I, I think, to understand what our media today or what the prestige media today represents. This Not is the ready. unity. This is the unity Biden talked about. It was really conformity and how they're united in their messaging. But again, they want to talk January 6th. They don't want to talk November 3rd. I wish the Republican Party and even the conservative media would have spent a week talking about November 3rd on the anniversary of that. But Lee, thank you for what you're continuing to do to expose this. That's why I wonder if there's like the underground people that are like, okay, let's just start our new republic. And if that's like the best idea, because it's not just like one party second party it's both parties but then again listening to what's happening in 
what the Bible, when you talk about Revelations 4, I, I thought it was an intri- interesting concept when he talked about what I have to talk about was myrrh. Myrrh is a powerful oil, and yes, it was used as that, but it was also used in the Egyptian time for your face, and it's amazing for your skin. And But I thought that was interesting that it was a gift then, but it's not a gift that in Revelations. So I thought that was interesting in what he was t- saying. I also want to bring it back to where the persecution happened when they were supposed to like hail Caesar as God. And then if they didn't, then they knew it was death. And what paralleled to what's going on right now um, and the way that people are being treated, those ones that are completely on the state that vaccines are saving lives, even though it's not at all, but they have been just brainwashed forever and how they're treating other people and the persecution and, and then the push for persecution with that. I just thought that was interesting. Now, there's another thing I want to say. It's on my um, holistic travel list before we go and just listen this out to chapter four of Revelations. There is a Guatemalan well-known player dies of a heart attack during training just recently. Um, we're just going to watch. That's why I said 2022 is going to be a lot of funerals. That's my prediction. And then I, I don't see greatness as people want to say greatness. I just said, oh, I'm going to just keep my eyes on God. And I was talking to a girlfriend that is a strong believer and we both have family issues and we're both like, you know what? We're just keeping our head focused on him. So we're going to listen to in the message version of chapters revelations and then turn um, in this uh, podcast today. A door into heaven. Chapter four. Then I looked and oh, A door opened into heaven. The trumpet voice, the first voice in my vision, called out, Ascend and enter. I'll show you what happens next. I was caught up at once in deep worship, and, oh, a throne set in heaven with one seated on the throne, suffused in gem hues of amber and flame with a nimbus of emerald. Twenty-four thrones circled the throne, with twenty-four elders seated, white-robed, gold-crowned. Lightning flash and thunder crash pulsed from the throne. Seven fire-blazing torches fronted the throne. These are the sevenfold spirit of God. Before the throne, it was like a clear crystal sea. Prowling around the throne were four animals, all eyes. Eyes to look ahead, eyes to look behind. The first animal, like a lion. The second, like an ox. The third, with a human face. The fourth, like an eagle in flight. The four animals were winged each with six wings. They were all eyes, seeing around and within, and they chanted night and day, never taking a break. Holy, holy, holy is God our master, sovereign strong, the was, the is, the coming. Every time the animals gave glory and honor and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the age after age living one, the 24 elders would fall prostrate before the one seated on the throne. They worshipped the age after age living one. They threw their crowns at the foot of the throne, chanting, Worthy, O Master, yes, our God, take the glory, the honor, the power. You created it all. It was created because you wanted it. Okay, I do not know why I didn't do the whole thing. Um, Interesting. Sometimes when you do it in the message version... Uh, sometimes I have to switch it to another version, but at least you get some and then you can switch it and listen to it in the King James, whatever you shall like. 
that was chapter four of Revelations, part of it. Um, and I'm going to end this long one. And uh, thanks for listening and sharing. I'd prefer some comments or reach out on via email. Always a support if you'd like to buy some essential oils, you can go to my website. It's in the show notes below. Um, and ways to support this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>